What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I'm Mark State. And as always, a huge thank you to everyone who keeps this show on the road by supporting us with a little bit of cash. Uh, if you come to uh, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, you can support the podcast and you get tons of extra stuff. If you become a chart topper supporter on Patreon, for example, you get access to over 130 deep dive episodes. I know that because I had to count them recently for a thing. <laughs> and you know, and we've done, because we had someone in the BXP group uh, the other day say, Have, um, has anyone, has there been a deep dive on, on uh, websites, author website? Yes, there has. Just go to the bestseller experiment uh, web, uh, website.com and j there's a search thing there. If you put websites, it brings up the deep dive that you know, that we did uh, with uh, Simon at Bookswarm on websites and what makes a great website. We've had uh, episodes on uh, SEO, search engine optimization recently. We had a brilliant episode with Tim Lott about his new book on how to write a novel, which is one of these. Uh, when it started out, I thought, is Tim going to give me a hard time? Is this going to be difficult? but he was fantastic he was so funny we've had such great feedback on that 130 episodes that's more than most other podcasts Podca frankly i was gonna say <laughs> i was just i was thinking hang on a minute most podcasts last about six episodes exactly exactly absolutely so, bonkers you don't so, know what you're missing out on folks if you have check it look, out check it out go, yeah, go and have yeah. a look at the website and then and then and then you got the academy then. where you get me and mr d as your you know tutors so uh links in the show notes just google it look us up you know it's all good support us and we can keep the show on the road thank you uh and over <clears throat> do you know do you know when you said and then it reminded me of one of the f my favorite moments in a movie have you ever seen the movie dude where's my car you know that one's passed me by. Oh, okay. <laughs> Silly film. It's kind of like it's. It, but I tell you what, there's a moment where uh, these two guys, the dudes, funny yeah. enough, in their car, they drive up to a, uh, um, a fast food outlet, a Chinese takeaway fast food right, outlet, right. and and they keep asked. They ask for a couple of things, and the lady <laughs> goes. And then, and they're like, no, no, that's it. And it's, and then, and then, you've got to watch it. Anyone who's seen it will know I was crying, crying with laughter as I was, Mark, on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day, by the way, Mark, for last week. Yes, and to you. Um, I was crying with laughter on a, uh, a, a viral video. Uh, I'll just say this. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Type in shampoo prank Hulk in, in YouTube. Do it after the podcast. It's just, just watch that. If you need a laugh today... Just watch this. It is the funniest thing I've seen. I was literally doubling up. I was I was crying, laughing, and it was brilliant. 
Because you might you have to watch it after. Well, I'll show it to you after the podcast. It's brilliant. This is this is how this is how you pass the the summer evenings now. Isn't no, it? this is how I pass. <laughs> this is how I pass Father's Day, lying in bed on a Sunday morning, waiting for the kids <laughs> for the breakfast, which didn't arrive. I'm uh, like, older kid having older kids sucks on Father's Day, Mark. Yeah, it we're sucks. up. We're up because of our bladders. We're up before they are. It's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I was telling someone in Canada the other day about that BBC series called Grumpy Old Men. And um, <laughs> needs to come back, like, doesn't it? Needs to come back. Like, we could come back. We could do the podcast. We no, like we're about positive vibes, man. We are yeah, about positive vibes. We are. We are about positive. Yeah. And actually, you know, we're here to cheer you up this week, folks. There's a lot of heavy stuff going on in the world. So if you've joined there us, really is. There if really you've joined is. us for a little bit of escapism, well, if you've joined us for a little bit of escapism, or maybe you've joined us because you need your weekly dose of inspiration, that's what we're going to deliver today. We've got a great interview and we, we just want to continually bring, uplift your spirits because we know, we know that writing can be a real challenge. It can be really hard work. Other times it can be the most amazing thing in the world. So if you're struggling this week, stick with us. Because by the end of this episode, we're going to yeah. hope that you leave happier than you came in. Yeah, I mean, I'll be, I'll be honest. You know, like a lot of people at the moment, I'm stony broke. You know, and there's a WGA strike, and I've got all these scripts that I can't really sell to anyone. Um, and you know, everyone in publishing who owes me money has paid me. I know because I've asked my agents, like, does anyone owe us money? We managed to squeeze like seventy-one quid out of Unbound. You know, <laughs> so it's like that's it. So you know, I, I'm kind of. But what I've been doing, rather than just sitting here inside with a bag on my head, I have been. Uh, I've been just booking calls with other writers just to say, hey, you know, you're up for a chat, you're up for a 10-minute chat, whatever. And it's interesting. One of them already has opened the doors to something that might be happening, you know, and it's – it's you know, so I've just been reaching out to people just for a conversation, just to say, okay, so if you're one of these writers thinking, why the hell is Mark suddenly contacting me out of the blue after like 18 months <laughs> of never speaking to me? That's why, because I just think, you know, I can sit inside under that desk with a bag on my head wondering about interest rates and where the world is going, or – I can get talking to other people and maybe totally. see, you know, what's happening in the world, how I can help them, how they can help me, or just for a chat, you know, just to yeah, make a bit of human just contact. Reconnect. Yeah. You know, folks, you do make your own luck in this world. That's what I've learned. You know, you, you, there's ups and downs, all the cycles of good and bad times. And I, I was joking Mark before the podcast that the last thing you want, you want ups and downs because the alternative is a flat line. And no one wants to be flatlining, right? <laughs> it's not a good state of life. So the the most important thing is to to just hustle, get out there, get writing, write it out. You know, it probably be actually weirdly enough, if people are struggling right now with things going on in the world, you might actually do your best ever writing. Like it worked for mm. Adele. She 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 broke up with a with her longtime boyfriend. And what did she do off the back of it as revenge? She wrote her first album. Well, Look where that got her. You know, you just never know. You just never know. <laughs> That's the Bill Bailey joke, isn't it? Bill Bailey did a joke about Adele. He said, this is the new Adele song. Uh, you broke up with me, but I'm not going to go on about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to make a song about it and make millions off the back of it. Exactly. Yeah, and then every, yeah, can you imagine though, can you imagine being that boyfriend that everywhere you go on the radio, you just hear these breakups. I mean, that is the ultimate revenge. Brilliant. So just get, get writing, write it out. And uh, yeah, let those emotions flow, folks. But Mark, we've got such a great interview. I think we should just dive straight in and um, and talk about this week's guest. 
a, a legend, a bit of a legend, I think. This is Katie Ford. And now Katie Ford, her debut novel, Living Dangerously, snapped up by a publisher before she'd even finished writing. It was published in 1995 when she was 42. That's 10 years after she first started trying and she was finally a published author. Since then, she's written a further 29 novels, a collection of short stories and a quick read. Uh, her books have sold over four and a half million copies in the UK alone. Now, she credits the Romantic Novelist Association for helping her to finally launch her career. And she rose up through the organisation to become the RNA's fourth president. That's a position she's held now for over 10 years. She, In that time, she's founded the Katie Ford Bursary to support aspiring romantic fiction authors. And uh, just this year, in March 2023, she received their Lifetime Achievement Award. She got a new novel this year as well called One Enchanted Evening, which was inspired by a cookery course she went on in the 70s. And it's the third in a trilogy of standalone novels set in the 60s, following three friends, Lizzie, Alexandra, and now with the new book, Meg. And I had a great chat with uh, Katie. We, we talked about how she made time to read and write with a busy family life, what she learned for writing for Mills and Boone, and how the gift of a writing kit changed her life. Fantastic. So let's dive in and listen to the phenomenal Katie Ford. Katie Ford, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, and very delighted to be on your podcast. Well, I, what's taken us so long? That's the first question I've got, <laughs> because uh, you're, you're an inspiration, absolute legend. And I know lots of our lots of our listeners are romance writers. Lots of our listeners are, are members of the RNA. And I know lots of our listeners will be fans of your books. And you've got a new one out. Uh, so let's start there. Uh, let's talk about your new novel, One Enchanted Evening. Tell us about that. Well, one enchanted evening is the third in a um, uh, in a series. Apparently, if you call it a trilogy, you have to have a narrative arc mm -hmm. that goes across all three books. And to be honest, if anyone says narrative arc to me, I come out <laughs> in a rash because I'm not quite sure what it is. However, I've managed all this time without knowing, so we must be all right there. But um, basically, the story starts with um, a wedding in the country when three girls join, uh, go to a cookery course in London. And I went on a course very, very similar to this. And the teacher of the course is very, very, very similar to my teacher. <laughs> and she was French, but she had an English name. And she was very despising of British food and all that <laughs> stuff. Only British food she approved of were Bramley apples. Um, but anyway, three girls are all sent there or go there for different reasons. And um, Lizzie is sent there by her mother because her mother wants her to make a good marriage, by which um, that means somebody who's a member of her husband's golf club or would be <laughs> eligible. Um, and then there's Alexandra who's an orphan and has been sent there by her guardians because they don't really know what to do with her. And then there's Meg, which is um, she's the heroine of um, One Enchanted Evening. She has gone there because she wants to learn to cook so she can go out and get a job cooking. Um, when I joined my course, I was fed up with secretarial work and I wanted to do a course which would enable me to get jobs mm. as a cook or just do something different. And so I was the sort of Meg character. But um, unlike Meg, I didn't have a, a mother I was trying to um, look out for. Meg and her mother are very close because her, her mother was a young widow and they've become very close, rather like 
Gilmore Girls or any of those sort of mother-daughter things. The, the girls, the women do become close to each other. And, you know, they're not quite like sisters, but they're a little bit like sisters. <laughs> and so Meg has always wanted to buy her mum somewhere to live so she's not dependent on live-in jobs. Because the disadvantage of a live-in job is that if your boss makes a pass at you and you have to leave, because in those days that would have been your only alternative, mm. um, you know, you wouldn't have been able to, nothing else to do, and you would then have to leave your home as well. Mm. And Meg is fed up with her mother being in this position, and so she's determined and has been from a young age to earn enough money to get some sort of accommodation or at least put down a deposit, although... Getting a mortgage in the 60s was not possible for women unless you had a man backing you. Yes. Just appalling. I know. I know. I, I, I was just about to say, you could have set this book right here and now, but then you said that and I thought, yeah, God, because you couldn't do it, could you? You had to have a man it sign couldn't. off on it. Good grief. I know. It was just <laughs> appalling. I mean, I remember my mother. Um, it was maybe the 60s or the early 70s. Um, my father was away from home um, as a teacher and she wanted to get something on the HP higher purchase, yes. as it was called then. And uh, she couldn't do it without his signature. And I think eventually they they um, let her sign off on it. But she said, if they think that he ever remembers to pay a bill unless I remind him, honestly, you know, why is he getting the financial responsibility when it should be mine? And goodness me, we all, you know, we've all experienced things like that. Although I have to say my husband's very good and he does remember to pay the bills. But um, yeah, things were very different for women then. Was that why you picked that particular period? Because, uh, as I understand it, the series is set in the in the sixties. So, yes, because because of you know the the challenges facing women then. I mean, a lot of them aren't that different now. Sadly, there you know there are still different challenges, I guess. But that period appealed to you for that reason, did it? Um, it partly did. I mean, I could have set it in the 70s, except I think the 60s just sounds sexier and more fun. <laughs> yeah. um, and it does have this image of modernness, you know, the mini skirts and yeah. lovely clothes and minis and music and everything, which is so much fun about it. But then when you look into it, it wasn't so life for women wasn't so different from the 50s. Mm. But um I thought it'd be fun to also I just wanted to give myself a change of scenery. Although of course a whole lot of problems as well. But it was fun. And once I'd got used to the idea of going back to the 60s, it was lovely. And I wrote the first one during lockdown. And it was bliss to be writing about somewhere but COVID really did not exist. Mm. And I could just hide away from the real world in my book world. It was lovely. Now you said this isn't a trilogy. But you've got no, this narrative art, whatever we're going to call. I'm going to call it the Katie Ford literary universe because you've got you've got these three characters essentially living in in the same world. Was it? I, I mean, a trilogy. You kind of have to read all three books in a certain order. With these three, can they be read in any order, or do they work as standalones? And if so, how did you how did you manage that? Well, they do work as standalones. I just wrote them as standalones. However, in the um, the books two and three, uh, the characters from previous books do appear as characters. But um, I'm hoping the intention was that you could just read them as characters who are in the book without having to know their past histories. And if you do happen, have to know their past histories, it's sort of referred to. So you sort of know where you are. 
Um, but it was fun having those characters to add into the plot because it was sort of like having old friends. I didn't have to mm-hmm. create them from new. They were already ready-made, so to speak. Um, and I really recommend doing a series, even if you can't manage a trilogy because of the narrative arc. Um <laughs> Because you do get, you meet old friends, you know, characters you become very fond of. And it's lovely to see them again and see how their lives progressed. I mean, it hasn't progressed massively in my case because um, it's only over sort of a three-year period. But Lizzie in the first book um, is in one, I was going to say something, there was a great big spoiler. So I sort of back (laughs) off on that one. But she has progressed a little bit by the third book. That's the pro- that's the problem with these narrative yes. arcs is spoilers ahoy. <laughs> well, exactly. You say it's only three years, but a, a lot can happen in those, as they do in the book. A lot does happen in these books. How are you keeping track of those characters? Is it just all up in your head or are you using some people use cards or spreadsheets or, or whatever? Did you have any kind of system for that? No, um, the word system and me is basically an oxymoron. <laughs> I'm not good at any of that. I have friends dear friends who I love, who have spreadsheets Mm -hmm. and they know exactly where every character is at any given time. I sort of know and I sort of remember. And if I don't remember, I have to check, read it and check back. But basically it's all in my head. I I do make notes of that. I have a piece of paper Mm -hmm. with some things written on it, but I've usually lost the bit of paper by the time (laughs) I need to refer to it. And so... Um, I do work in this awful, awful, disorganised mess. I'm a terribly bad example. If they'd known what I was like, they would never have let me be president. <laughs> well, we'll come to that in a minute. But you're clearly doing something right, because I think you're, we're up to 29 novels now, four and a half million copies sold in the UK alone. Let's go back to where it all started, because um, as I understand it, you... You and your husband, you started a business and you became addicted to Mills and Boone. Is tell tell us about how it all began. Well, yes, I did become addicted to Mills and Boone. And while I wasn't so addicted when I was we were doing our business, we had a pair of narrow boats, which we operated as a hotel that moved, and I did all the cooking. And Desmond was responsible for getting the boats from A to B. And we had crew, a couple of crew to help us. Um and I did used to read Mills and Boone novels while I was on those trips, but I didn't have very much time for reading at all. Although I was actually did also read Jane Eyre when we first started, and I had forgotten. I had read it earlier on, but I was so gripped by it. I kept um, standing there stirring things, holding my hand below so my guests could see I was stirring. But they couldn't <laughs> see I was also reading because I was quite addicted. Um, but I really became addicted to Mills and Boone when we gave up our narrowboat hotel and bought a farm, not a farm, a little farmhouse it was, but there was no farm attached apart from one field um, when we lived in Wales. And Desmond used to go away to sea and I was left with my babies and I had eventually two babies and they didn't sleep. And they didn't not sleep at the same time. So there was always somebody waking me up. So I was very tired. And I'm sure an awful lot of women all over the world will relate to that very tired thing when you've got children, especially little ones. Mm. Um, But uh, life was quite hard and I was quite lonely when my husband wasn't there. Um, So 
I used to read Mills and Boone novels. And the good thing about it is you could just read a really quick little bit and it would mm-hmm. just give you that little break from life, a little reward. You'd put the washing machine on and you'd have a little read. And then you'd take the washing out and you'd have a little read. And um, you'd either rocking a baby or feeding a baby. I used to read a lot while I was feeding. Um, And I would just do it as a sort of keep me going thing. Mm. And I was addicted, though, because if I didn't have a little stash of these novels (laughs) to read, I would feel anxious, which I think defines addiction. And actually, I mean, it could have been, seriously, it could have been alcohol or uh, chocolate or Valium. So I was lucky it was Mills and Boone novels. But as I became less tired, I realised that some of the books I was reading were really good and some of them are really quite poor. And I'm really quite ashamed of saying what I'm going to say, but I will say it. I thought, well, maybe you could write one of the less good ones. <laughs> but if I heard my children saying that their ambition was to write something that was you know, not good or something they didn't really admire, the less good ones, maybe you could bring yourself up to that standard, I would be absolutely appalled. Um, but that's what I thought then. Um, because in my ignorance, I thought Mills and Boons must be easier to write than ordinary fiction because they're only um, a 50,000 words long as opposed to 100 or even in those days, 150 when books were really fat. They're a lot thinner now, thank goodness, yes. unlike the rest of us. Um, <laughs> they, um, you know, they were really fat and I thought it would be really difficult to write an, a normal novel as opposed to a Mills and Boone. And so once I'd um, started thinking that I would really quite like to write them, I read them with a slightly more critical eye. But it was a while before I started writing and I didn't actually start writing until my mother, who obviously heard me talking about wanting to write a novel um, for long enough, gave me a writing kit for Christmas, which she made up herself. She um, assembled, there was a ream of paper um, I think that's the only thing really we use, still use from that writing kit. But there was a thesaurus, which you'd have online now, and a little dictionary, which I still have in my drawer. Oh. And occasionally I do look at it just for old time's sake, um, because I've always been a dreadful speller. I'm actually quite dyslexic, but I didn't really discover that until later in life. Right. Um, and there was Tipex when it was little bits of paper, which you put this little bit of paper where you'd put made your typing mistake and then you'd type the wrong letter again and it'd yep. go on the white and that would wipe out <laughs> yeah. that thing and then you could retype. So there was Tipex. People don't, I mean, why would they know about Tipex? I think they might know the painting on kind, which we still have, but I don't suppose they knew those little bits of paper and mm. pencils and pens and it all came in a sort of file. Um, and it was a bit of a, shut up or put up moment. Right. And I had three small children at this time, an Irish wolfhound and two cats, <laughs> and a husband who was away at sea a lot of the time. But actually, that was my advantage. Having the husband who was away at sea it was good because when he was home, he could stay with my daughter when she wouldn't stay at playgroup, which was always. She's such an independent person now. Um, but at playgroup age, at two, she was dependent. And so he would sort out that side of life. And while he was home, I would steal an hour away from being a wife and mother. And I gave up ironing because that, 
you know, gave me a little time. And my cooking became became a little less um, recipes and more a million ways with mints. <laughs> I would just sort of start frying some onions thinking, well, there must be something else I can make with this. Um, and so the meals became a little bit scratchy. Some of them were fine. Some of them weren't so good. But I would get my hour a day to write. And when I started writing, I realised this is what I'd been missing all my life. Right. Not Well, yes, most of my life. Because when we first moved to uh, Gloucestershire, where we live now, and still in the same house, I used to think I've got everything. I've got a lovely husband. I've got my lovely children. I've got my lovely dog. And it's very beautiful around here. And I've got lots of friends. And it's all so nice. Why aren't I happy? Mm-hmm. And when I started writing, I became happy. And it was I was obviously missing that creative thing, that mm-hmm. part of me which needed to be creative. And so once I started writing, my hour stretched. And if we were going out for the day, I would get up really early so I could get my hour in. And it soon became two hours. And then I would write at all weird times of the day. Like I'd go upstairs in theory to run the children a bath. Really, <laughs> I'd put the taps on nip into wherever I was writing, depending which room it was, and write a little bit and pretend that I really wanted the bath to be that full when I finally <laughs> came upstairs to have it. Um, so, you know, I was stealing the time to write and I just loved it. But I will say it was easier for me because although I was busy with my children, I didn't have a job as well. And now I meet young women who've got children and a full-time job, Mm. and they still manage to write. And I really do take my hat off to them. I've got a dear friend, Jo Thomas, who's a a wonderful writer, and she used to take her littlest to nursery. Her other two were at a – she had three under three – at a bigger nursery, and she'd take the baby to nursery, and then she'd drive her car around the corner, and she'd sit in her car (sighs) and write – Rather than go home, because thing is, if you go home, then you start doing the chores. Yes. So she would steal that time to. That's how she found her time. So it is possible, but I do really um, take my hat off to those people who have full time, engaging, busy jobs mm. and a young family, and they still write their books. Absolutely, uh, don't we all? Um, let's talk about the the RNA, the Romantic Novelists Association, and the role that it played in your career because there was um there were years of rejection but it was it was quite a turning point for you was it i think you met an agent at the rna the rna were hugely instrumental in starting my writing career apart from anything else because they kept me supported during the long years when mills and boone were saying oh this is so near um <sighs> but it's not quite for us could you try and do this this and this and this and um while i was sort of quite became very inured to to that. It was having them saying, you know, you are a good writer. Come on, Katie, just keep going, Mm. which made a huge difference. And they had what was then known as the probationary scheme. We now call it the new writers scheme. And it's for unpublished writers. And you submit your unpublished novel to the scheme and a published writer will read it and comment on it. And these comments are really very helpful. Well, one year, the organiser of this scheme was also a scout for an agent who was a new agent. Uh, She'd worked for a big publisher and she was fed up with um, having to tell poor authors uh, that they couldn't have an an extra 
£100 added onto their contract, which she knew perfectly well her publisher could afford. Mm. And she wanted to work for the um, the fox, not the gamekeeper, <laughs> I think is probably the expression. And so she was new. She didn't have any clients. And so Dr. Hilary Johnson, who is, I'm not sure she's still doing it now, actually, was a book doctor when people would uh, send their manuscripts and she would sort them out. She used to have some very famous clients and sort them out. Anyway, she was in charge of the new writer's scheme and so had read uh, one of my books because, as to be honest, latterly, my books, they tended to say, this is um, great, It needs something else needs to happen to it. But it was sort of always close, but no cigar. Mm. But anyway, Hillary read it this particular year and she was a scout for this agent. And she had asked me, Hillary had said, oh, could I have a copy, another copy of your book, please? Because I can't remember what reason she gave. She didn't tell me. And I didn't question it. I just said, oh, OK, here you are. Um, and although it took ages to print them out in those days because we had paper with perforated edges and uh, printers with sort of weird, I don't, you're far too. Oh, no, I remember that, the old dot <laughs> matrix printers. I remember those very, very well. <laughs> yeah, very, very well. And when well. you pulled off the bits, your ed, your um, manuscripts had sort of furry edges. Yes. Anyway, um, she <laughs> sent this off to Sarah Malloy, um, who liked it enough to want to meet me. And so I went up to London to meet her absolutely in fear and trembling because mm. I worked in a whole food cafe. You know, I didn't have a high powered job by any stretch. And um, we had a chat and Sarah said, well, send me the first hundred pages by the end of the year. Well, this was in the spring. I thought, well, I'm not going to send 100 pages because that's half a book. I'm not going to risk writing so much if it's not the right thing. And I'm going to do it now. So I wrote, you know, we'd had a little discuss. She had said, oh, can you bring a sort of 10-page synopsis? And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's an awful lot. So I set my uh, computer on triple spacing. <laughs> so they're really far apart. The lines are really far apart. And I cobbled together about three pages. Anyway, I didn't have a proper synopsis, but I had some ideas and we talked about it a bit. And we had a lovely chat and she said, don't forget, we like jokes. Well, um, I don't think Mills and Boone in those days did terribly like jokes. And if they did, they didn't like them to be at the expense of the hero, yeah. which was a bit disappointing, really, because, you know, if you like making jokes, who do you make them at the expense of? Obviously, mm. the one you love. Well, not necessarily, but in my particular case. So um, <laughs> off I went and I wrote her two chapters, no, one chapter, and I sent it off. And I didn't hear back immediately. I had to wait about a fortnight. And she said, first of all, she said, I'm so sorry for the long delay in getting back to you. I thought, what long delay? From a Milson Boone in those days, people had waited up to a year to have their books sent back to them. And it's not because Milson Boone didn't try terribly hard, but they just had so many submissions. Yes. And so that was nothing. I thought she's come back to me far too quickly. In fact, we were on holiday and I had to get the, the person who was living in my house looking after my Irish wolfhound to open the letter and read it to me. And we were <laughs> camping and we were in this campsite uh, club 
and I sit there putting 20p's into a phone box, <laughs> trying to hear over the noise of all these people drinking and having a good time around me, trying to make sense of what my friend was saying. But I realised it was good news. But I almost wanted to go back there and then and not even have the rest of the holiday because I wanted to go and see the letter for myself. But she was very, um, very nice about it. But she said, no, your first chapter needs to be two chapters. And so I had, you know, met, say padded them out, but I made it longer, mm-hmm. sent her them back. And she said, oh, fine, now send me the next bit. So I sent it to her in chunks. And there was the time where and she used to ring me up and tell me what she thought, which was fine. Except sometimes I thought, has she got nothing else to do? <laughs> How can she have read it and be ringing me already? Because I would have liked a little breathing, you know, mm. a little time off. But no. She was very, very efficient and very on the case, which actually is brilliant and what you want in an agent. Mm. But there was this time when she rang me back and uh, rang me up and she said, well, there was a very long pause. And then she said, linen sheets. And I thought, linen sheets. Oh, my goodness. Oh, there's some sort of no, no, because I had sent her a sex scene, which I wasn't expecting to happen quite when it did. I was expecting the sex scene to come at the end, which is where the proper place is for sex in a novel, I thought, in my green, you know, when I was naive. And anyway, it had come up earlier, so to speak, and I put (laughs) linen sheets in it. And I thought, is there a sort of no-no about linen sheets? This is something I've done wrong. It took me minutes to find out whether she'd liked it or not. Fortunately, she had. It was okay. And so I could carry on writing the book. And she very brilliantly found me, um, well, the two publishers who both wanted it before I'd finished the book, which after eight years, I mean, this sounds like a um, success, overnight success story until you realise that I'd been trying to write for Mills and Boone for eight years uh, before this happy day when I stopped writing for Mills and Boone and actually wrote something that suited me better. I think really with the Mills and Boone, I was trying to fit myself into a size 10 dress when really I was a size 16. And I think (laughs) that's what it was. I couldn't quite squash myself into the space, but I learned so much from writing those Mills and Boone novels that I'm eternally grateful to them. And I really do think that one of the reasons Um, I've managed to keep it going is because I learned so much from those early books. You have to keep on the point all the time. You cannot, you can have second, you can have secondary characters when you're not writing for Mills and Boone. And I thought, oh, well, this will be bliss. I've got all this space now. And then I thought, oh gosh, this is scary. I've got all this space. And I didn't know what I was doing. Well, I'd learned what I was doing with the Mills and Boone, even though not well enough. Um, but it kept, you know, I do understand now about having to keep the plot going, keep the page turning. Mm. Don't let yourself drift off to describe some pretty something or other or a, a comical secondary character who doesn't actually move the plot along. I learned that you need to keep the plot moving. And so I put the fact that I've managed to go on from that first book, and I think it's 30 books now, and I actually like to add in the two Christmas anthologies because I don't, oh, and I did a quick read. Mm. So it's a few books. Um, and I feel I learned so much from the, all those failed Mills and Boone attempts. So I'm eternally grateful to them. 
and will always credit with the, you know, credit them with teaching me so much about writing. Now, apologies if I missed this, but what was the comment about linen sheets about? Well, I had had my couple making love on linen sheets. And I had obviously mentioned that the sheets were linen because my hero naturally was immensely wealthy and lived in this amazing house. Um, although he had his other problems. But um I didn't know whether I shouldn't, you know, people didn't like linen sheets. Maybe, you know, they were considered too, uh, I don't know, old fashioned or wrong or, you know, difficult to look after. Whatever, <laughs> because they would be very difficult to look after if you had linen sheets. The ironing would be hell. Um, so, it, but it just took, she was just so long breathing, saying, <laughs> well, and then you just didn't know, you know, just waiting for the sword of Damocles to drop. But they were actually considered to be okay. Um, and I haven't had linen sheets again, I don't think. But <laughs> I feel if I had to, I would feel confident that it's okay to have them. Very good. Very good. Let's talk about your work at the RNA because you've been chair at you were chair at the RNA uh 2009 to 2011, and you've been president since since 2011 uh you founded a bursary uh you sponsored the debut romantic novel award and congratulations just this month of recording we're recording this in march you received the lifetime achievement award so you know you've you've played a core role in the rna uh how has romance fiction evolved in your tenure there how what big changes have you seen I think the biggest change that I've seen, and I was on the committee for years uh, before I was chair, because I always said I wouldn't be chair, and then I left the committee for a bit and then was asked to come back on, um, is the number of publishers there are now. Mm. They were different public. There were quite a lot of publishers when I first started, but they were beginning, the smaller ones were beginning to fall away. And so there weren't so many publishers. Now there are many publishers. And of course, there is the option of becoming an independent publisher uh, or self-publishing, mm. which when I first started was considered very much a no-no. There were always people who for about £5,000, which was an awful lot of money in those days, um, would publish your book and would put it in beautiful leather gold tooled covers and you if you were going to make money selling them you'd have to sell them for about 50 pounds each mm. um so really not a good idea and that was very much a frowned on and now um people do write really really good books and produce them themselves sell them themselves and take all the money um i don't think it would suit me because i think i'd find it very difficult to actually sell the books as well as i wouldn't really want to do without an editor either or any of the people who help me. But it's a perfectly viable proposition and it's no longer frowned on. And I think that's the biggest change. But also there's um, far more people writing the sort of books that I write now. When I first started, there weren't many of us. There was me uh, and there was people like Julie Cooper, but she was so big and different mm. um, in sales terms that. Her books went, I can't really compare her to me. And there was Jill Mansell and a few others, but there really weren't very many. Mm. Um, and so we sort of had the field to ourselves. 
But um, now there are very many more writers. And actually, it's terrific because there's lots more opportunities for people to have their work read and assessed by the public, which is, um, you know, the only the only critics that matter really are the people who buy the books. If they don't buy the books, it doesn't really matter how brilliant your books are because no one will ever know. <laughs> um, so um, that's changed. But as I say, I think that's a good thing. In fact, I think it's all good, really. Um, I sort of miss guarantee being in the top 10 with mm-hmm. every book that I produced because there weren't um, so many people writing what I write. There certainly wasn't TikTok who um, back writers in a way nothing else does mm. and maddens the publishing world because they can't control it. Yes. <laughs> and part of me would love it if um, my books reigned supreme and I didn't have to compete with people on TikTok. But actually, that's a jolly good thing that independent, ordinary people can have, um, you know, spread the word about books they love and those books to do really well because of it. So, um, as I say, part of me wishes it wasn't so. The other part is saying jolly good on you and, you know, crack on. And just looking to the future with romance fiction as well, are there any particular challenges? I mean, publishing as a whole with, you know, as you say, social media plays a key role. There are big conversations about authenticity, diversity, artificial intelligence, all these things. I guess these are challenges for the the romance genre too, aren't they? Yes. I mean, there are always challenges for the romance genre because it's always been despised. It's sort of... I don't know why crime is respected and romantic fiction isn't. And I don't really know why one is and one isn't, because, um, well, one is something that we all, well, most of us experience love and falling in love. And the other is something, if we're lucky, we don't ever experience. Mm. And so, although I also like to read crime, so I'm not, I don't despise the genre at all. But I just don't know why we're not considered okay and crime novelists, you know, crime novels are. But we've always had this. And sometimes I think, oh, you know, this is awful. We should fight it. And other times I just think I can't be bothered. You know, it was ever thus. And I'll, you know, I can be huffy all the way to the bank because, you know, if if your books sell well, it doesn't really matter what genre they're in. Um, But I think in the future, there will be more ways of publishing books. And as you say, AI, which is a horrifying thought. Also, celebrities are asked to write books mm. in a way that they weren't quite in the olden days. In the olden days, you if you were a celebrity, you might write your life story and you might sell billions of it. But it's unlikely that you'd be asked to write a romantic novel and be helped to write it. Uh, by other people. But now that that's um, quite common. And these books do sell. And some of them are, are, are better than others. Some of them aren't, aren't so good. But if people buy them and they like them, and because they want to buy a book with a famous name on the cover, you know, there's nothing anyone can do about it. I'm always a bit grumpy with celebrities, though, who <laughs> have their books out because they get so much publicity, which mm. an ordinary old writer like me couldn't get. You know, we're not going to be invited onto Graham Norton no. um, because we've written a book, even if we've written it all ourselves, because <laughs> we're not a famous name. Mm. But then, of course, there are the famous names 
who have written them all themselves, like Richard Osman, for example. But even he gets so much more publicity than a normal person would get because of his high um, profile on television. But on the other hand, we all do love him because, um, you know, his books are jolly and he's a very nice chap. However, in my heart, I'm still a little bit jealous because of all the publicity. Oh, yeah, we could we could talk about this all afternoon. But let's talk about what's coming next from you, Katie. Now, I saw somewhere you went on a Ray Mears survival course. Will, will, will you be branching out into Andy McNabb-style adventure soon or, or crime? I've heard you want to write cosy crime. Uh, branching out at any point or will it be romance all the way? Well, to be honest, I did hear that Andy McNabb didn't necessarily write all his books. But of course, that would be a horrid, <laughs> wicked rumour. Um, so, but I, no, I won't be doing Andy McNabb because, to be honest, the Ray Mears course I did was more involved um, in sort of making fires and plant life and making a shelter and making flames just using um, a sort of knifey thing and all stuff like that. But making the shelter was fun. Um, so, no, I won't be branching out too much. I would like to write a cozy crime because I like reading them. I find mm. them soothing. Um, I think a lot of people read them for that reason because uh, sort of the world is put to rights. You know, the evildoer yes. is confounded and um, all is right with the world. But I don't think I could work out the plots. I don't think I've quite got the quite right sort of mind. Unless Richard... Osman would like to do that bit for me. And then I'm sure we can make a great duo and sell billions. And my little four and a half million could add to his, the four and a half million that he sells every week. Um, but um, I, I don't think I will be changing genre. I've already changed genre enough writing in the 60s, which although it doesn't seem like much of a, a change in genre, did cause everyone to play when I was going to stop writing, you know, just for three books, contemporary fiction. Um, so I, I might write about slightly different things or have a different setting, but I don't think I'm actually going to go for cosy crime. However, if I did think of a plot, I might. Excellent stuff. Well, whatever comes next, we'll all be looking forward to it. Katie Ford, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and hope to speak to you again very soon. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been brilliant. Oh, Mark, I tell you what, Mills and Boone, mm. we, 1908 they started, 1908. And we were doing a bit of research, weren't we, before, before the podcast. How many books do they publish a month? It's like 100 books a month or something. It's, it's phenomenal. It's, <laughs> it's just, just phenomenal. bonkers. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely amazing. And we couldn't actually find out how many books they published in total, but it's got to be in the tens of thousands it's just oh at least it's it's one of the it's one of the one of the most amazing success stories isn't it and it also as like 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 katie was saying it, it opened doors not just in her writing career but her pre-writing career i found it really fascinating that she talked about this idea of having a mills and boone novel kind of with her during a daily kind of yeah. the daily grind of whatever she was doing, but like she would snatch those moments of escapism, you know, 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there. And she learned quite a lot through that process as well. Didn't she? Yeah. I think what she, she, she talked about understanding the addiction. Uh, you know, I think that's once you understand what readers want from a book, then you're in a greater position to deliver it. 
And she said, you know, she said, keep on on the point all the time, keep the plot going, keep the page turning. But I think because she also, she loved those books where she was addicted to them, she understood the addiction that that made people want want to come back for more. And I think one of, one of the greatest lessons you learn as an author once you've been published is that gulf between what the reader expects and what you've delivered. And sometimes those things can be miles apart. And I, you know, I'm the worst at this. I write, I think, strange books that don't necessarily fit in you know in in a slot but i think if you if you want to write commercial fiction you need to marry up what the reader expects with what you're delivering and if you can do that then you are off to the races so you know katie ford with with her books she she learned her craft in the mills and boone stable you know this thing of delivering exactly what the reader wants but She's now with what I call the Katie Ford Literary University, the KFLU. You know, she she has now created a world where she's she's now got her own voice. I think with Mills and Boone, you're not really allowed to develop your own voice. You've got to write to a specific kind of tone and style that their readers expect. But once you've put, you know, your name on the cover of the book, and I've got, you know, I've got a copy of it here. Uh, sent by the publisher, you know, when when readers read a Katie Ford book, they expect to hear her voice and her tone, uh, but one that delivers and gives you a satisfying read every time. And that's a really, really important lesson to learn, I think. It is. And it's it's also a really good reminder to everyone and to ourselves that thinking about what what makes a great author, and we hear this so many times, it's not just about writing, it's about reading. Mm. And it's about reading and reading and reading and reading. And I think in every craft, in every creative form, the more we absorb um, of other people's work, the more we start to you know, almost, um, subconsciously understand what makes it tick. And, and Katie put in, you know, she put in the hours and she, she, she read a lot. And, and, you know, I was, I was thinking like, great you know, think of the greatest artists of the world you think of like people like the beatles you know they didn't invent music they spent hours and hours playing cover band cover versions of songs yep. before they started writing their own material and so i think it's a challenge for a lot of writers though and it is for me i'll be honest like my 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 working week is insane like to to, to snatch a, a bit of reading you know on in a daily basis i have to schedule it oh i mean maybe i should do katie's thing and and, and carry a book around with me but um you know, to write a novel is a big, big undertaking. Reading a book for many people is a big undertaking as well. Like it can take some people, some everyone reads at different speeds and um, it takes some people longer to read certain types of novels than others. Yeah, but I think the other thing that Katie did that was really, really important is she became part of that community. So the RNA is an incredible community. I, I've been lucky enough to go to the conference a couple of times and, and do Q&As there and moderate panels. And they are such a lovely bunch, but you... By hanging out with the folk at the RNA, who are not just writers, they are readers as well. So you are going to discover what readers want from books, what works in books, what delivers, what readers are looking for in fiction. It's constantly evolving, constantly changing. And I think once you're uh, attuned to that, you're much more likely to deliver the kind of book that is going to go like the gangbusters. And yeah. I think whatever genre you write in, then you need to figure out what it is that people love about that genre can you write that? Can you deliver? I know we all think we're unique little snowflakes and our books are above genre and beyond categorization. But the fact is, you know, if you want to be a commercial author, you've got to start thinking about, okay, how can I develop my voice but still deliver what 
the readers want and what the mass market wants. And yeah. I think if you can do that, then you are golden. Uh, but it's it's um you know there's an element of compromise there, uh, but it doesn't mean you have to be boxed into a little corner. I think you, mm. you know there is a sweet spot where you can do both. I'm still figuring that out for myself. Well, though. <laughs> and it's interesting as well because Katie also talked about how her perception was maybe her kind of she was starting out thinking maybe I can write a less good version of a Mills and Boone's novel. Yeah, and, yeah. And this idea yeah. that thinking that because they are only 50,000 words, they'd be easier to write no. uh, compared to, and I think she used the word, a normal novel. Yeah. And I thought, quotes. really? Yeah, really interesting, <laughs> right? It's it's really interesting, the perception. And I think what we're learning is it's easier to write a longer novel. It's easier to write, I mean, it's hard to write 200,000 words, but you know, to write a succinct book in 50,000 words is a real challenge. Very, very hard. You have very to be, because we do tend to all want to write more. We've always got more words. We've always got more words. The day we die, we're always adding more words to our total word count, you know, whether it's spoken, written, or otherwise. And so I, I think it's really interesting of this perception of, you know, small is easy it's the reverse small is absolutely hard. i mean in last week's episode with jd kirk we talked to, you know talked about the fact that he wrote so many children's books writing children's is hard writing children's yeah. is really hard yeah. i think writing short and sweet romance doubly hard as well you know it's 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 not it's not easy uh, the, the number of absolutely the number of authors i've spoken to who said yeah well i thought i'd knock out a mills and boone and it's you know it's it's really tough, really, really tough. <laughs> it's a boot camp. It is a boot camp. should be Mills and Boot Camp is what they should change their name to. Excellent stuff. Let's talk about the writing kit. I love this it's idea. Great. I mean, what, what, firstly, firstly, like everyone's always struggling, like what, they're going on Amazon looking for a gift to buy somewhere for. I love, I love it when someone sits down and says, okay, what does this, per- what, what would be really unique and it will take a little bit of thought and effort into what won't necessarily cost, you know, like a, a ton of money, but let's put together something really thoughtfully um, planned. I love that. What a great gift from, from Katie's mum. Yeah, it was great. I mean, it, it was a, and it's basic stuff as well. It's a thesaurus, a dictionary, Tipex, the old tip-ex. paper kind. Do you remember the old paper kind? I of do tip-ex, remember the paper kind. Which was on a ribbon. So it's before the, you know, the, 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 the liquid stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, what's nice is, uh, you can actually buy a, a sort of luxury version from Kate's website. So uh, you get a little... Um, That's inspired. Yeah, a little book. you got uh, pencils and paper clips and post-it notes and stuff like that. You can get it personalised. I'll stick a link in the show notes if you want to get that for anyone. It's a really nice nice kit. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you could pop into Smith's and, and just get, you know, get people a notepad and pencils and, you know... Uh, I mean, thesaurus and dictionary you can get online now, but it's always happy to. I've got apps. I've got the Chambers apps, but you can um, always, you know, it's it's just this thing. If anything else, regardless of the contents, it was in a way her mother just going, "I believe in you, and you can do this." And here are the tools of the trade: not a laptop, not a writing app, expensive writing app, or you know, or yeah. anything like that. It's just pencils, paper, and the determination to get it done. That's all. Good old-fashioned writing. And actually, again, following on from last week's, if you missed last week's episode, by the way, you must, must listen to it. It was really interesting. And honouring Mrs. McAllister, the librarian that gave Mm. J.D. Kirk a little writing pad. Again, they get just, and and it's, 
it's weird in a way because when it happens, you're just like, oh, that's nice. But then years down the line, when you reflect back and you think, oh, that was the moment, it mm. becomes this like seismic milestone in someone's career. Like the moment the librarian gave me a writer pad, the moment my mum gave me a writing kit. So it does have a massive impact on people's lives. So I want to encourage everyone who's all the writers out there that were looking like go and encourage somebody that you believe in who should be writing and maybe isn't like maybe maybe pull together some you know odds and sods and give them a give them a little boost because like you say mark that the, the gift represents the confidence mm. and that has so much value i was talking yesterday with a client of mine i was coaching and this idea of external validation even though we shouldn't have to have it totally need it as human beings because we don't yeah. believe in ourselves enough and when somebody else believes in us it helps us start to believe in ourselves and yeah so i, I just think that's a brilliant idea and i think we can do that in many different ways you know, not just in writing kits there's this all if you need to encourage anyone in anything like just pull some things together and just give them something beautiful in a basket whatever it might be um absolutely love that the other thing that katie was talking about was this idea that she would you know, find that she would give herself an hour a day to write. And I like the idea that she gave herself a specific time, but it was also interesting that once she gave herself that time, it started to stretch and then it became yeah. two hours. Mm -hmm. And again, this is the power of giving yourself permission to write. If you're really busy folks and you are not giving yourself permission to write, then make an appointment with yourself, schedule mm -hmm. it like you would do a doctor's appointment, like give yourself half an hour, 15 minutes, do the 200 word challenge structure it in some way to give yourself because once you start then your your day will start to move around the writing and then you might find it starts to increase as well and i think that's the story of so many authors we've interviewed as a mark is how it started they started small and then it became i mean it almost became like an obsession where they would yeah you know well she talked about to write. she talked about joe thomas who dropped off the kids at nursery then sat in the car writing mm -hmm. Uh, I remember we had Liz Fennick on the podcast many moons ago, who again took that time between dropping the kids off and going to work with the Pomodoro technique, you know, writing yeah. in for 20, 15, 20 minutes or whatever it was, you know, that tiny gap in the day. I used to write when I was a sales rep driving all over the country. I, I would write say, my remember, lunch yeah. break. I'd pull, pull over into a layback, yeah. lay by, uh, you know, scarf down a. <laughs> In it's a, a lay story I haven't heard yet. <laughs> in a lay-by uh, for uh, non-UK people, that's just you know where truckers or whatever you know park their cars to have their lunch. So, uh, and I'd scarf down a sandwich and then you know just write in uh, sometimes on a laptop, sometimes a notebook. I had a memory come up the other day as well. Uh, on Facebook where, um, weirdly, I think it's the same trousers I'm wearing now. And this is from about eight years ago where I, I would go on about the fact that I'm writing on a train, but my laptop would run hot. It's those old, you know, it pre-Intel MacBooks that got so hot and I'd burn my thighs and I'd have these sort of sweaty marks on the top <laughs> of my thighs where I'd be writing. So, you know, writing on the train, that was um, that's probably more information than anyone needs. <laughs> they didn't so, have a yeah, catch fire, yeah. did they, Mark? No, my one didn't. No, no. That, but you know, that would have just, been something. Just find the time. There is, there is. I know people lead incredibly busy lives, but if you can find that twenty minutes, it makes all the difference. And actually, going back to the 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 mum that dropped the kids off. I mean, we 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 had someone I remember early on in the podcast that told us that they they would go. You know, they they'd, they'd have a notepad in the car. And if, you know, they'd go to pick up the kids and they'd maybe get there 10 minutes early and they'd be, yeah, they'd be yeah. writing and, you know, getting scrabbling as, few, as many words and just snatching the time. I love the idea, though, of doing it, like this idea of doing it when you drop the kids off, 
before you get home. Because we all know this, right? The minute you walk through the front door, it's like to do the central dishwasher. And that's why, and that's another thing that a lot of people have discovered with, with COVID. And we, we both knew this and, and, you know, me having worked from home for like 25 years, I do have to leave the home. I have to leave the home sometimes just to do some work. (laughs) And that's why it's so important. Like go to your local library, go to a cafe, you know, stay in the school car park and write your 50 for 15 Mm. minutes and then go home. Cause then you're banking those words, you're getting them done and whatever happens in your day, night, how many, how chaotic the rest of your day is. You've written something and you can take that to bed that night and go, I actually created something outside of just crossing things off a to-do list. Cause I think we need that in our day um, the busier we get, the more we can struggle with the monotony of the chores of life, as I call them. And writing is that moment where you actually say to yourself, I'm going to gift this time to myself. Writing is a gift to yourself in many ways. And by allowing yourself to do that, you're, you're recharging yourself. You're saying, you know, I, I, my, my creative needs, my creative um, wants matter in amongst all the busy needs of everyone else in the, in the family, in the world. I need to nurture this and I need to recharge myself. So this is a really important thing just from a mental health perspective as well. Um, and so I really, really this week, okay, challenge everyone. I mean, go join a 200 word challenge. If you haven't started that, if you're doing it, if you started it, you maybe fell off the wagon, start it up again, do a couple of days, but find the time in your day to do it. It's not just about, I'll see if I can write today. It's like, pick an event that happens every single day and then follow it with your writing. And that way you anchor the two together. And anyone who's kind of studied habits knows that's how it works. So yeah, it's just a really good reminder, isn't it, Mark? Absolutely. Yeah. So folks, we've got a lot more that we'd like to chat and you can join us on this week's extended edition of the podcast where we are going to cover all kinds of interesting things, including, including celebrity book deals. Oh Yeah. We're going to do it. We're going to go there. We're going to go there, folks. It's (laughs) going to be absolutely fascinating. And we're also going to talk about perceptions of success as well, about, um, you know, uh, looking at at other authors around us and um, measuring their success against ours. And Mark's going to also kind of deep dive us on tips for historical fiction writing. So if that is your jam, then pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and sign up to become a patron of the podcast to get access to the extended today. So, Mark, tell us about this week's incredible wins. Oh my gosh! How long have you got? How oh, long? I've uh, got seriously, all day, mate. All day. I, I don't think we've had a week like this. This is quite breathtaking. Okay, this is quite. I'm going to start with a lovely, easy one. Okay, so Inkborn Blade on Twitter, who has uh, has been on the 200 words a day writing challenge for as long as I can remember. Inkborn Blade, he said, "I did it." 500 days of the two word two two words 200 words a day writing challenge as coined by the bestseller experiment he says i'll put a blog post up about it soon but there's no way i'd have written 222000 words 222000 in the same time without it without exaggeration it's changed the way i write for good i mean mr d Oof. come on let's salute Amazing. inkborn blade there it's just incredible absolutely brilliant. brilliant so delighted for you now, uh, wins. Lynn Clark, 
member of the academy in the past. She's part of the BXP team as well. She says, I've been okay to tell everyone who will listen that I've got a ghost story accepted for the Curious Blue Press anthology, December Tales 2. Never had anything accepted before, so I'm pleased as punch and rather bemused. Lynn, this is, you know, I Lynn's writing is just fantastic. I've seen it in the academy. Lynn is a legend in the making. So this is the beginning of something amazing. So when that comes out, Lynn, let us know about it. We'll plug the socks off it. I'm just so happy for Lynn that this has happened. This is absolutely brilliant. Congratulations, Lynn. Uh, Anne Woodward, also in the Academy. Uh, and this, again, great news, great news. So uh, Anne Woodward says, I entered the Val Wood Prize in 2022, and it all went quiet, and I got on with my writing life. Two weeks ago, I received an email apologising for the delay in, in awarding the prize. There have been technical difficulties, and telling me the results would be announced soon. On Friday, I received a follow-up email congratulating me on my win. I'd won the Yorkshire Prize of the competition, which was just for writers living or born in Yorkshire and whose story was set in Yorkshire. As This is the first competition I've ever won. I'm a bit chuffed. And I'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can read Anne's uh, short story. That is absolutely brilliant. Congratulations, Anne. Yeah, and it's so, so huge. We can't, we can't say enough how important these these milestones are winning winning or getting nominated shortlisted whatever it might be it makes such a massive difference to building your self-belief so congratulations and we're absolutely chuffed for you talking about talking about making a huge difference so Susie edge who's been on with the deep dive before talking about how amazing she's on tiktok okay uh well and she's going to be on the podcast later in the year because I'm getting her on for a second book. And Susie is a big supporter of the podcast in the BXP team and on Patreon. Susie said, are you sitting down? Because I have some news. I've been long listed by TikTok as Book Talk Author of the Year. It's insane. <laughs> it's incredible. That is huge. Like, I mean, Book Talk is like the biggest thing in the world right massive. now. Massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To yeah. be on long listed for the Book Talk list of authors, that is utterly nuts it's crazy isn't it absolutely crazy so Susie huge congratulations uh, hopefully we'll have some news by the time we get you back on the podcast and we can talk about wow. the whole roller coaster ride of that and, and whatever happens with that it's just astonishing um now, you're going to love this one, Mr. D. Uh, we've had some incredible follow-up from the J.D. Kirk episode, uh, and thanks to everyone who's been in touch about that. Um, one, Zoe Richards, who, again, has joined us on the 200 Words Day Challenge as well. Thanks for joining us on that, Zoe. Uh, Zoe says, I've been listening to the Bestseller Experiment podcast on the dog walk and discovered from a tangent conversation. That's a polite way of saying part of our waffle, I think, Mr. D. A tangent <laughs> conversation like they had that it's not common to be able to block off your sense of smell. I can do this. Can you? Weird that people can't do this. Mr. D, you're not alone. There's another one with your superpower. Zoe. It's like you and Zoe, you could form the Avengers else. or something. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we need to, we have to form a club and give it a name. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Well, Zoe, welcome. Welcome to the club. Uh, <laughs> I don't quite know where we go from here, but uh, it's good to know I'm not alone. That's for certain. Right. More follow up um, from uh, Nijar Alam, who is at Nijar Alam writes on Twitter. Says another great episode, and I love that I'm not the only one who loves jigsaw puzzles, especially book themed ones. Here's one for your collection, and it's a lovely uh, one with a cat and books. And so, Mr. D, again, you're not alone with the jigsaw puzzles oh, either. People out there are, are loving are loving Let's the jigsaw puzzles. <laughs> Thanks for that, Nijar. <laughs> right I, now, these last two, I don't know which one to do first. I'm going to do this one first because this 
this is such good news. This is amazing news. So our friend of the podcast, long-time supporter of the podcast, Andrew Chapman. You remember Andrew Chapman, uh, The Mask Collector, was the book that he wrote in 24 hours. It was based on a screenplay. He'd written a screenplay, and he did. He wrote it in 24 hours. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can listen to the episode where we interviewed Andrew about that. It was an astonishing, astonishing achievement, okay, right? Andrew, uh, just a couple of days ago, said, I've been dying to share the news that The Mask Collector has a director attached for months and I can finally talk about it. And The Mask Collector is on its way to the big screen. And he put a picture of him and director Steve McCartan uh, to, to sharing a pint each. This is, this is how it starts, man. This is how what? it starts. So, Okay, uh, rewind. So, so <laughs> how did this even happen? Well, you know. Is it he, all a mystery? It's uh, well, maybe we need to get Andrew back on at some point to talk about this. But the the, the truth is, I read the screenplay of this uh, when it was originally a screenplay, and it's an absolutely cracking high concept thriller. Okay, yeah. it's it's terrific. This guy's robber bank, and one of the people in the bank is a serial killer. Boom! You know, it's just terrific. So great script, uh, adapted it into a terrific little book, and now he's got a director attached. So this is this is you know this is Andrew making it happen. Absolutely making it happen. So huge congrats. Well, watch this space, folks. We will keep you up to date on how that progresses. Yeah, just fantastic news. Right, and this last one just blew me away. So um, this is, well, where where do we even start? (laughs) (laughs) This is is just astonishing because, you know, we we had J.D. Kirk on the show last week and uh, he was talking about the fact that he has this uh, condition uh, where he he doesn't have kind of an an inner kind of can't visualize things aphantasia okay this thing called aphantasia where he said like if you if you said to me count sheep in my head or visualize a blue ball he just couldn't do it and he was astonished to find that this was a thing he thought everyone was like this you know but, but so anyway and we said to we said to people look if you think this is you here's a link in the show notes check it out you're not alone kind of thing. And so uh, Edward Kane, who is at Nihilis on Twitter, he started a thread. He was like, holy, I think you just changed my life. And J.D. Kirk said, in a good way, I hope. And Edward says, I always thought I was dumb. I mean, I was told so in school, but now I think I understand why I'm terrible at giving directions because I can't picture it. And this explains why I can't describe a thing, but when I sit down to write it, I can come up with the imagery. Thank you. And JD says, oh God, giving directions is my personal hell. And being given directions, it's an odd moment when you learn a new thing about yourself, isn't it? Glad you found it useful. Edward says, a while ago, my wife tried to help me with how I often leave out descriptions in my writing by asking what I see when I read books. I never thought about it prior, but I don't picture anything. I read the words. Sometimes I see vague impressions of people in white rooms. It's why I found writing comics so fun and interesting. It seems to work better for my brain because I can imagine what a page looks like. The, the gutters and such help my brain so much. And, this, and JD said, it's interesting that we both write comics, which is a visual medium. Edward said, I find it easier than prose, but I always think I'm describing too much and it's boring in prose, but then people read it and say, I I don't know what's happening, but comics are set parameters. Um, But anyway... Edward says, I must say that Aphantasia explains why I've written several stories where the world around the characters disappear and they wander through blankness. It's a fascinating as subconscious works. And he says, I wish I could hug you guys because this explains a lot. He says, I'm more hypophantasia, which is a reduced level, but not completely absent mental imagery. It's why many of my stories don't work. Setting is usually absent because when I read books, I don't see imagery. And I said to Ed, look, is this going to help you moving forward? He said, I had, I had been 
give, thinking of giving up on prose because I've written some stories that I believe were sure to land somewhere and they haven't. But now I understand better and I feel rejuvenated. I know where the wall is and I understand so much more about myself now. And he says, I feel like the secrets of the universe have been unlocked. And he spoke to his brother about it and he described something similar. So it runs in the family as well. Now, I've... I. I've had the pleasure of working on Ed's stuff as a as a kind of consultant and editor and and giving him feedback. He's a terrific writer. I mean, make make no bones about this. Ed is a terrific, great imagination, great characterizations, what have you. So I, but the fact that he's discovered this now and unlocked this, I really hope, like he says, it's um, it's 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 unlock unlock the universe for him. Ed, I really hope this encourages you to keep writing and to overcome that barrier and to make something out of it and, and use JD as a kind of a. And uh, you know a template for for what you could possibly be, but that yeah, is phenomenal, it's isn't it? Absolutely mind blowing. And you know, the, the last week's episode with JD Kirk, you know, if, you know, to inspire it, it's 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 JD's superpower, isn't it? It's Barry's superpower. He, I mean, I, I know, I know, we have to be careful whenever someone has, you know, you don't want to describe people with autism as having a superpower or what have you. You know, you don't no, want to, you don't want to trivialize it, but it kind not of is. At all. But it kind, yeah, but I think I think the key thing is once you understand what it is, you can you can use it in so many powerful Absolutely. ways. You make it work right? for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 no, yeah it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. So Ed, thanks so much for allowing wow. us to share. I checked with Ed; he was okay with us sharing it, and I just think it's um, it's it's why we do this podcast, man. You know, we can it is. change someone's life. That's amazing, Absolutely brilliant. And thank you to everyone for all the incredible good news this week what a fills week. us up so you know whilst out in the big big wide world as we start this podcast there's all this bad stuff happening this is the bit where we try and counterbalance it with all your great news so if you have something to celebrate you know, it doesn't matter how big or small you think it is we want to hear about it pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com go to the contact tab and drop mark and i note we read all the emails that come in and uh we do try and, you know, mention everyone, everyone that reaches out. So thank you again. And if whilst you're on the website, folks, if you'd like to get uh, an update of all the amazing things that we've been learning each week on the podcast and what you might benefit from, please sign up to the newsletter. Click on the newsletter tab there. There's also, of course, the 200wordchallenge.com, which we've mentioned and, uh, a number of times today. So if, if you're curious about what that is, it's a free challenge. Can you start by writing seven days consecutively of 200 words and then a few more days and then a few more, maybe a month and maybe a year. And, and then, then you might get to... And, and then, then... And then... And then, and then you and might then. get to 220,000 words. Right? So absolutely brilliant. Mark, for people that want to contact us via social media... Yes, uh, we're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. And if you've been inspired by this episode, by Katie, by JD, by but by any of our guests uh, or even us, uh, give us a rating, subscribe, do all those things. And listen, I, I'm serious about this. Tell your friends, all right? T -t Talk about us in writing groups. I, I, I don't know. I. We seem to be like the best kept secret on <laughs> social media. People who like the podcast really like the podcast, but seem to be reluctant to tell other people about it. So do tell all your writer friends. We get so much great feedback, um, but, uh, you know, uh, we need more people to listen to us, frankly, uh, yeah, because absolutely. I think the, you know, well, we, the more we can, the merrier, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, tell your friends. Invite them to the party, folks. So brilliant, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Tatty bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.